Welcome to the Adventure Brief, a podcast designed to give you insight into the startup ecosystem. It is brought to you by Adventure, the UK's first student-led venture builder and accelerator, bringing university's most talented people and ideas together. On this podcast, we speak with established founders, VCs, and Adventure's most successful participants to hear about their journeys and experiences. To find out more about Adventure, visit our website at adventure.vc. Well, hi, everyone. Thank you for joining the session with um, Gareth. He's founder at Skyscanner, and um, he will be uh, talking to you about his journey, uh, starting from uh, the initial stage of Skyscanner up to um, uh, you know, what it has become now. And at the end, you'll be able to ask uh, questions you want, and, um, and Gareth will be able to answer them if he wants to. <laughs> so I will leave it to you, Gareth. Thank you. OK, uh, welcome, everybody. and. Um... I look forward to the questions. I often find that's the most engaging part. So what I will do, I'll have, um, I'll have you on um, the mosaic view. And if anyone sticks their hand up, perhaps they can let Ragnar or Fl uh, Flynn know. And um, I'll try and spot on the cameras. And uh, I'll come to you if you've got any questions during it. I'm going to sort of try and power through the story so that you can then get on to topics that interest you, perhaps as you're thinking about um, what your journey may or may not be. Um, so I was in London and I shared a flat with a friend and knew someone else by him. And the three of us got it in our minds that we were going to start a internet business. This is about 2000. Um, we're all working in technology and software, but not so much uh, in the internet. And of course, we've been watching um, like, uh, we've been watching the dot-com boom, basically, um, and the bust that came after. Now, the dot-com boom was a little bit insane. Um, you'd get things like someone saying, I'm going to deliver pet food to everybody in the country via the internet. And because it was via the internet, um, they would get um, $100 million when $100 million was a lot of money um, thrown at them and they'd just go off building something. There's a few, if you want to read about that time, there's a book called uh, boohoo.com, uh, I think, or boo.com. Something about the original boo.com uh, is quite a fun one. Um, but even before that, I'd really recommend reading stories about Apple and Microsoft, especially. Um, particularly Microsoft, you look at Bill Gates now, he's going to be spending close towards $100 billion on projects he thinks benefit society. Um, he was an out-and-out competitive bastard uh, when he was building Microsoft. Those two things are not incompatible. Um, so um, the three of us decided we were going to do an uh, internet company. In a way, then, we didn't know certain things that are actually quite useful to know. Now... It might have given us pause for thought. We didn't know about network effects. We didn't know about talent density and how everybody migrates to Silicon Valley, apparently. Um, we didn't know about the funding environment. We didn't know about um, 
technical and product and uh, build internet creation, internet technology creation trends that take a long time to reach uh, the land of banking and others. Um, and so we just got started. Um, we were very fortunate in a couple of ways. One, zero funding, external funding. What we did, well, let me actually say how we started on Skyscan. We each presented about three ideas to the other two co-founders. And at the end, we voted on which one was the best one. Um, I presented um, a, uh, a flight checking um, prototype. I also talked about something called shared favorites, which was, I suppose, a bit like dig or stumble upon or possibly a bit like Reddit. Um, and um, my, one of my co-founders presented effectively a real estate prime location type startup. Um, and yeah, we had a, a music, a infinite jukebox for pubs idea, powered by this new thing, broadband, uh, which had come at last after dial-up modems. So, you know, all the ideas were out there in the ether, and indeed it proved that Skyscanner had uh, possibly a thousand competitors over uh, from then to now. And um, I think one of the lessons is I was the only one that built a prototype of the thing I was proposing. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence we all got excited about the one that had built a prototype about. So we'd all sort of put together a, a kind of one pager for all of our ideas, but they're very dry and it's hard to judge them on their merit. Whereas with the prototype, um, you could actually look at it and go, ah, I can see what this could become. So one of the things I'd definitely uh, point out would be that if you can show someone what you want to do and want them to help you do, that is so much more powerful than uh, trying to uh, write to someone uh, or explain to someone. You know. Anyway, we started building, um, decided to do that and got started. I uh, stopped working um, at the place I was working and we split two salaries three ways. Uh, it's a pretty big step to do with your friends if you think about what's required to do that, particularly when you think the idea, you know, you've got no pedigree as to why it should work. You don't really, you don't really know anybody else uh, who's done an internet business. Um, so that was a big step of trust in uh, all directions. Um, particularly given I had a, uh, uh, I had habits that made me a little bit unpredictable. Um, and so they had to kind of rein me back in and uh, sit me in front of the computer and get me coding again for 20 hours straight type thing. So um, we got started on that. It took probably a couple months to get the next version up and running. And we were kind of happy with that. We didn't get funding. Given that we really started in 2001, we were a proper business in 2003 with a registered company and paying salaries and things rather than just shifting money between each other's personal bank accounts. We didn't receive funding until 2008. So that's operating for seven years before getting funding. What that meant is when we did get funding, we were still in control of our company. 
we operated at Skyscanner. Um, it's much more common now, but we were evangelical on doing what was right for the customer, for the traveler. And if it wasn't right for them, we wouldn't do it. Um, we, it was an incredibly difficult decision to put adverts on the site. And even then, we did it, with, we did it in a way that didn't maximize the revenue. Um, it made some revenue. Um, but it was in a way that tried to be useful uh, for users. And um, that way of operating is quite unfamiliar to older business people or business people that don't have experience in the internet um, because revenue is proof in a way. But actually, with an internet business, user engagement is proof. That is the really important thing. Um, and revenue, you know, you can, there's various ways to fake that. Um, during the dot-com boom, um, uh, I heard that a lot of people used to sign an advertising agreement with fellow startups and exchange a million dollars of revenue both ways. And they're now both startups with a million dollars of revenue. <laughs> there was no million dollars. You know, it's ridiculous. So, um, so actually, the people... People caring whether your startup exists is the most important thing. If nobody cares, you do not have any reason other than you think they will care tomorrow. Um, and if people care and get value from it, then I think is the point at which to say, okay, we now have time and resources to say, how about we pay something for it? It's not the only way to do things, but I think the, the valuing giving people, um, thinking it's important that giving people value uh, is, uh, I think that's incredibly important. So we started, our, num our very first metric was something called repeat visitors. So in the early days, um, I remember putting some business cards on cars in shopping uh, car parks. Um, uh, my co-founder wrote in and suggested our website for BBC Radio 2 website of the day, and we got at least a couple of hundred visitors that day. And so we, visitors would go up and down um, quite a lot. But what we, said, what we decided was, do people come back? That's how we measure whether what we're doing is worthwhile. And it proved a really good metric because that is actually quite similar to pirate metrics, um, um, activation and uh, retention and all of those sorts of things. So, so that was a, that was something we did right. Um, I moved up to Edinburgh just as we started hiring, um, and so our first person that we hired was down in Leith. We were based um, on Bernard Street in Leith. If any of you know down there, um, and um, that was a that was a really exciting period. Um, I think the, the best experience I had was when being out in the pub one day and someone, we were talking about travel and someone telling me to use Skyscanner and they didn't know anything about it. Um, that was a really great feeling that someone random, a friend of a friend, had suggested I use the website we'd been working on for a couple of years. Um, anyway, we then, we got up to, I think it was about 40,000 people using us a month. So it was kind of like a stadium um, and um, a mountain a month. And we thought, well, you know, that's an insanely high number of people. That's brilliant. 
uh, and we decided to get funding, got uh, VC funding. Um, funding's a whole topic in itself, although I do think it's overdone. People see go out and get funding. I mean, you're working for the VCs. If, if everything is paid for by the VCs, are you really an entrepreneur would be my question. You're a project management in employment for the investors, um, which is different to uh, being um, uh, is different. So um, we gradually um, carried on. We got up to 10 people, 20 people. 2008, the financial crash uh, came along and uh, no, 2011 the financial crash came along, uh, made redundancies, which um, I've just been uh, made officially the CEO. We've been running things informally. So that was one of my first things was to have to make people redundant, which was quite difficult. All friends going to the pub after work and restaurants, whatever. Um, and uh, we just, we never had a year that stood out from the others. We grew at about 100 to 150% year on year in user numbers and say revenue as it came in and every year would be the same and I'd be going god damn it why can't we grow at 200 300 percent you know you read these success stories that are overnight type thing and it never felt like that it felt like the the graph of revenue or users looked at a, at a day by day a week by week or a month by month it felt pretty flat but if you get enough, if you get 10, 12 years of growing at 100%, eventually you get somewhere. And so by the time that I left, we were up to over 100 million unique monthly visitors. Um, and it was kind of weird because um, we just kept doing um, the, you kept trying to find what the key to unlock growth was, but actually it happened in the background. And it was that repeat visitors in the end. Um, and I think one of the things, so Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, had a thing when people came to him about whether Google should do X or Y. And it was called the toothbrush brush test. And the idea was, unless you need to do it twice a day, he's not interested. And that's really smart because travel is awful in actual fact. How often do you fly on a plane? Not that often, not compared to brushing your teeth. Actually, the really high-frequency activities are where the really fast-growing companies are. There are exceptions, but certainly in the consumer space, even startups that are SaaS products for other startups or businesses, so many of them, if you need to do it frequently, check metrics dashboards, say, then you've got a way of growing by word of mouth and such like, and not get stuck in a, um, a problem where, in travel, most of our competitors would raise, say, $10 million, and they'd spend $9 million of it, giving it to Google. And so, and I've invested in a few startups in Edinburgh, and the first thing I say is, um, look, are you, are, you a, uh, are you looking to get a moderately wealthy man and, and give that money to an incredibly wealthy company, Google or Facebook. Because if that's what you want startup funding for, uh, it's kind of like, it's a bit uninspiring to me because I don't want to make Google and Facebook uh, uh, richer. 
Um, and it's a way to get visitors up. It doesn't solve the repeat visitors problem. So um, anyway, um, we got up to, we moved into shiny new offices in quarter mile. Uh, we got up to, in our time there, we got up to 10 different offices around the world. Um, I started wearing a blazer even at times, like when I was being interviewed and um, I'd appear on sort of BBC World or something and people would sort of ping me and say, I saw you on that. And, um, and I suppose I got used to uh, the, uh, my time was scheduled, like every half hour slot had something and sort of eat a sandwich on the way to a different thing. I ended up spending probably a quarter of my time on recruitment. So if there's a great engineer based in Seattle working for Amazon, it takes something to persuade them to move their family to Edinburgh. Um, and I'd usually be the one that had to hop on a Skype call or a Zoom call and, um, and show them the CEO cared enough to speak to them, to get them to think about uh, joining us. And uh, so it was, it was intense, incredibly intense, really rewarding. It taught me, I'm essentially a, a, a geek by background. Um, uh, for me, the idea matters, is the most interesting thing. Man the thought of managing people, 1,200 people towards the end was a utter nightmare. Um, really uh, didn't fancy doing that, but it taught me uh, how much success is down to the tenacity uh, rather than the quality of the idea. Thousands of people had the idea for Skyscanner, um, many, many of them earlier than we did. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll pause there and invite um, some questions, see how we go on. Otherwise, maybe uh, uh, have to bore you with a bit of an anecdotage. Great, thank you very much. So if anybody has a question, you can either raise your hand or uh, maybe comment, uh, write a comment. Um, I'll maybe start with the first question. Um, so many of our participants are actually at the stage where they are starting to build the MVP. Um, and so it would be interesting to know how a Skyscanner, I mean, at the time MVP was, was not really a concept, but uh, what was your kind of your initial uh, product? I heard that you, you had kind of built something around Excel uh, but it would be interesting to know uh, what exactly you had built and what was the first thing that actually faced the public. Oh, hang on. Has my uh, camera gone off? Yes. <laughs> How long has it been off? Has it been off the whole time? No, just 10 seconds. <laughs> ah, okay, fine. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. A lot of the terminology wasn't around and we had to do it by instinct. So I think it helped that we weren't business people fundamentally, because business people have to start thinking about revenue much earlier. For us, it really was, I think in the original one pager it says, it's not very clear how you can make money from this service, but it is useful, so there must be a way in the future. And that was enough for us, because we didn't have to persuade any funders, etc. So I, we were MVP at the beginning. I'd say the way that we were different. So many of you will be familiar with Eric Reese's Lean Startup, perhaps. And, and I, th I think there's a lot that's useful in there. But I think treating it as gospel is also quite 
uh, a problem because we actually put a lot of effort in the beginning to uh, making the first proper version. So, um, so for instance, you can either say to a user, tell me where you want to go and the date, and I'll go off and fetch the information. Or you could say, I'll fetch the information already. You give me a little bit of a hint where you want to go, and I'll give you loads of rich data that allows you to narrow down. We took the first one, which was technically a lot, lot harder. And I think that was one of the reasons why, um, why we did so well against the competition. Now, lean startup approach, you probably wouldn't have gone down that path. Um, you'd have built the one that just gets the answer at the time someone asks for it. Um, and of the companies that went down that initial route, that choice, which was about 95 to 96% of, of competitors, virtually none of them rode it back to then bring in the let's get all the answers. Virtually none of them. Um, so I'd be careful on that front. But the we did use data, but we didn't, you know, I had an argument with someone on the um, hypothesis testing, A-B testing, and I said, well, okay, so if I tell you there's a spelling mistake on the site, are you going to ask me to prove that that needs fixing? You know, and um, and they, and, you know, they, they had a good stack of sticking up for their for their uh, data um, fundamentalism, which was uh, something like, well, you know, it's all a question of priorities. And I was like, no, you, you spell it wrong on the site, it gives a bad impression, just fix the thing. It's gonna take, you set up a trial around, it's gonna take 50 times longer, you know? And if it doesn't take you a few seconds to fix it, let's fix the underlying deployment pipeline. Um, so, but overall, I think, you know, the idea of build something, get feedback is really important. It reminds me of, did you see in the news that there was um, pigeons trained to detect cancerous cells and they performed better than humans? So you take a picture and it's got a bunch of cells and uh, basically if the pigeon pecks at, at one that is potentially cancerous, um, and it's correct, they get, they get a grain. Now, I, I was talking about that with some friends and we had a couple of thoughts. One is you could have a kind of um, PWS, pigeon web services. You know, you, you have a bunch of pigeons in a container and they're kind of deployable for AI tasks. But, you know, uh, I don't like factory farming, so I, I'm, uh, so we, we didn't pursue that one. But the other one was, it's about the time for the feedback. The pigeon gets the feedback loop within seconds. Was that right or was that wrong? Someone who's sitting, um, a technician that's sitting doing it and then getting feedback in three months time, because that's how long the get the appointment, go in, have a biopsy, etc. All of that is a three month feedback cycle. You cannot learn as efficiently unless the feedback cycle is like that. And that's why, you know, the, I think much better, there's a book called Don't Make Me Think. Uh, don't know how well it's, it's 
stood the test of time, but it's, it talks about hallway usability. You got an idea, you sketch on a bit of paper, show someone, explain it to them, get them to try a prototype on your machine and look in their eyes, uh, you know, and do they frown or do they show the light? You need the feedback loop to be as quick as possible. Okay, thank you. Uh, I had actually uh, a question because you were saying that you didn't get funding for the first seven years. So could you maybe elaborate on why you didn't seek funding or why you didn't get funding in the first seven years? Because I mean, it must have been quite difficult to operate for seven years, uh, dividing three wages by uh, two wages by three. So why is it that uh, you guys didn't seek funding earlier? Yeah. Um, So when we first started, we would have been embarrassed to ask friends and family for funding because we didn't rate our chances high enough to justify asking. Um, and we just didn't consider, we didn't consider going to strangers for funding. Partly it's because it was in the dot-com bust. Basically everybody had, if you're familiar with the hype cycle, based on a giant historic scale, that was the hype cycle going down into the valley of despond. Everybody had gone to from being either excited or scared. Um, Iceland, the freezer people, I don't know if you know this, but you know the freezer stores, Iceland foods, they changed, they put Iceland.com and it completely, that was it. You couldn't order anything online, um, but they just kind of went, hold on a minute, and they just put .com on all their sites, and that was an attempt to, to generate interest in what they were doing, and that's sort of And no one was interested, basically. There was no startup scene in London, let alone Edinburgh or anywhere else. So to begin with, it just wasn't possible. As it went on, I think 2006, we didn't have time was another reason. Um, and the other, you know, and, and we were, People and funders in Britain then, at that stage, they weren't interested because we didn't have re much revenue. It's like a couple hundred quid or maybe a thousand pounds a month or something. Um, and that wasn't enough compared to conventional funding opportunities. Um, also, then we got rejected um, by an angel syndicate. Uh, I wasn't at it, but with the immortal words, that's just a, um, you, all you have is a lifestyle business, um, uh, which showed them. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then eventually when we, we got funding from SEP, um, even then it was touch and go, you know, it, it was just not an easy funding environment, even though by then we had about, I think a million uh, revenue a year. Um, growing 100%, you know, even then it was kind of like, mm, don't know, you know, this is a bit sort of um, difficult. So, but I think also, I just don't want to, I don't want to listen to what investors say. I'll, I'll take their opinion. But some of, that's why we started a business was so we didn't have to listen to wankers telling us what to do. Um, and uh, and uh, which kind of does relate to how I became CEO. So none of us actually wanted to be CEO. When we got funding, they were kind of like, well, we want to know who we should talk to. So you've got to choose one of you. 
and we can um, decide who. None of us really wanted the, any of the others. So all, and none of us wanted to do the job. Um, and I basically, one of the things I said was, I want to be CTO. That's the respectable job in a startup. And um, oh, that was a program. So, um, and, uh, but I don't want some idiot telling me what to do. Uh, so I said, right, I'll be CEO. I'll be the idiot. <laughs> and, um, and ended up uh, voting for myself, uh, which uh, uh, then gave me two votes. <laughs> Um, so it, it wasn't a promising start, but um, I basically became uh, the idiot to avoid having an idiot tell me what to do. Um, what uh, probably in funding, so if you look at in Google and stuff, it looks like we've had lots of funding. It was all secondary. We had uh, four and a half million pounds of funding spent by the company in the entire history of the company. And we didn't actually need to spend two of that million, but four and a half million. So everything else was secondary, shares being bought by other people, by other people. Um, I think the most enjoyable thing around funding was Sequoia. So Sequoia, a very famous Californian uh, VC, and Mike Moritz, a very famous VC uh, working for, leading Sequoia. And um, basically, they sort of said, wrote and said, uh, hey, how are you doing what you're doing in bloody Edinburgh? And um, they'd been investors in Kayak. And I wrote back and said, oh, really uh, complimented by getting the, um, uh, the email. Our situation is this, our weakness is this, but I think our strength is this. Because uh, they were invested in kayaks, so I wasn't going to tell them too much. Anyway, kayak then got sold, and they then came back, and I said, "Well, we don't need funding." Um, and uh, and so they bought ten percent of the company um, at eight hundred million dollars, which, given our valuation internally, had been about forty million dollars before that. Shows the difference in the UK funding environment compared to the US. Now that was fun. Now, they bought 10% of the company from shareholders. So again, we gave up no control in running the company. Um, so it was perfect. And Mike Moritz, although he was scary, um, was incredibly insightful. Um, and that was, uh, that was really useful. So keep control of the company. If, you, if you're giving away control of the company, then um, you're going to have to compromise quite heavily, I would say. But would you say the, the funding changed a lot? Because as you said, it was only four and a half million. So yeah. how would you say that the funding affected the, the trajectory of Skyscanner or did it at all? So when we look back as uh, co-founders, we realized that the funding, logically, the funding didn't necessarily make a big difference to our outcome trajectory but it did in the end because there's three founders that hadn't decided who was ceo just did it informally etc actually we didn't know whether we were doing a good job or a bad job we uh didn't we argued a lot and although it kind of embarrasses me to say so we were looking for external validation and I've seen that a lot in startups that I've spoken to. 
getting funding implies a degree of funding, uh, validation of your idea and you as a person. And all I'd say to that is maybe it does a little bit. It more gives you validation as to your sales ability. Um, if you, um, who, you know, someone probably said, you know, if you want validation, get a dog or something. Um, but so it's a really expensive way to get approval. Um, you know, see a psychologist, uh, maybe. <laughs> um, but having said that, I don't regret it. It did the, oh, there is one other useful thing it does getting funding, which is it says you agree to sell the company in about 10 years. And when you set up a company that is your soul, is your combined with your co-founders, it's your expression of you in the world, that's a really awkward conversation. So the fact that there is an implicit agreement that you are creating an asset, a word I truly hated and still hate, um, is a forcing function as well. But again, you can sell 2% of the company. You know, um, We gave a lot of shares over, over the years to staff. Um, that was a great way of creating a sense of momentum, a sense of value increasing as well. Sorry, these are long answers. Uh, no, it's, it's awesome. Thanks so much. Uh, we have another question from someone in the chat, from Peter. He asked, um, you mentioned that you wanted to come across as a CEO who cares. How would you describe your leadership style and what strategies did you use to make sure all of your employees were working at their maximum potential? Um, I think the number one thing as a CEO, a manager, and a leader that I had going for me was... I believed in what we were doing and I believed in it with a passion. I wasn't uh, bullshitting. I wasn't kind of trying to grind hours out of people in order to create an economically favorable outcome. I believed in what we're doing. And I think not everybody uh, has that in their style or needs to have that, but that was one of my big advantages. I think the second thing was... I think as a company, we had really good values. Um, and I mean values rather than ideology or overall overriding theme of how things are. It was just like, what do we want for people we're working with? Who do we want to work with? And that sort of thing. And I think that helped us an awful lot. Um, when I look back, I realize um, that I probably wrote 10 times as many words and I should have spoken most of them instead of writing them. And that which I did communicate, I should have simplified tenfold. Um, It's really hard to get a group of people above. As a startup, we never had to think of, I mean, you, you know, with your family, you never think about communication. You just communicate or with your close friends. When you're above eight to 10 people, you start having to plan it and 
compensate for problems and such like. And I, th and I think um, one of the first hires that we did around about 15 people was someone who had that experience. And I think that helped a lot. I think, um, I think knowing that I wasn't a businessman, I wasn't a natural people person, helped because it's like, I, I didn't have any ego in, you know, someone goes, you're a shit manager. I go, yeah, you're probably right. Tell me how I could be better. Because, you know, whereas I remember some people, um, I have to be careful, make sure tears don't come to my eyes. So it's, it's quite a personal moment, but people opened a bottle of champagne when they got rid of my last bit of code. That is, you know, I was like, that hurt me. Kind of like, uh, but people telling me um, uh, that I'm a, uh, you know, I could learn because I didn't think I was great. I remember being in uh, the Sunday Times tech track, the, the 100 fastest growing private companies in Britain. And we were, for the fifth, I think we were in it seven times in a row or eight times in a row. And I think it was about the fourth time in a row that we were in it. And I remember kind of with my management team around the table going, how shit are British companies if we're, if we're, we're one of the top ones? Um, and it was kind of like, and I used to get forgiven for that quite offensive statement, I suppose, because I meant it to myself as much as anybody. It was a reflection on me as much as it, more than anybody else. Um, so I think there was an insane level of ambition and desire, willingness to go quite a long distance to get the right outcome. And um, so, yeah, and I've definitely, I've seen other people achieve things like, you know, sitting back, doing phone calls from a yacht or something. So it's not the only way, but I, I think it has to be authentic to you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's really valuable to have the, to have like this kind of more personal questions um, to ask. Uh, Shannon also has a question, I will let you go. Yeah, hi Gareth. Um, it was really nice just like listening to what you had to say about um, Skyscanner and, if, and essentially um, <clears throat> it being one of the biggest, um, you know, like flight um, apps or, you know, like travel apps that's used in, the, in Europe. So it is, um, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay, so it is, it is very um, interesting to, to hear what you have to say. Um, my question to you is that um, how would you like affiliate yourself with like trip.com or, um, you know, or Trivago or other sites like these? Do you see them as like competitors or do you see them as, you know, like partners that you would um, partner with and you see value in their partnership? Um, do you see them more as competitors or partners? Um, and my second question is, um, how would you view uh so i was reading the news and it says like in 2018 if i'm not uh mistaken um in october uh, there are a lot of like uh ipo acquisitions that are open to you um so how did you like go through that process and what was your thought process like um in terms of deciding the decision that you have right now yeah thank you um so uh i'll address the the first one is how do you deal with other online travel players? Um, how do you think about them? Um, and 
what I, how I used to explain it to people who joined the company would be um, traveler first, airlines and hotels, and travel suppliers second, and us third. It's not us never, and it's not, and it can be a compromise between all three, but that's the order of the priorities. And we will work with other online players, but we're happy to put them out of business. So Expedia, for instance, was the conventional one of our goal is to put Expedia out of business. And, um, and that's because the, the reason we put airlines and hotels and hotels ahead of us was they're doing the hard work. I mean, keeping 200 people safe in the air is, is a bit harder than checking something into GitHub and going, oops, if you got it wrong. Um, so there was a degree of respect that we had to suppliers, but for other online competitors, it's kind of like, you know, we want to beat you. Um, Trip.com you mentioned is an interesting one because they own us now. Uh, I'm no longer involved in the company. And so Skyscanner's role, one of Skyscanner's role is to um, make uh, potential customers available to the Trip.com engine. Um, but not uniquely them at all. And uh, um, if uh, things hadn't panned out this year as they have, um, then things were going very well. In terms of that process, so what led to C-Trip, what we were C-Trip and became Trip.com, um, acquiring us, the n- number one decision was um, essentially IPO or be acquired. In the end, we weren't big enough to IPO, in my view. We Technically, we could IPO. No problem. We could have done it. But we weren't a Airbnb or a, you know, a, something that was big enough that you could go, we are IPOing, but as a stock market analyst, shut the hell up. We're not listening. We're doing what we want to do. And I really didn't want to be in the position of being a public company uh, CEO that has to listen to the analysts. And uh, that felt to me like a death by a thousand cuts. So given that we had people on the team, including myself, but also my co-founders, long-running members of the staff who had a lot at stake, all their eggs in one basket, I thought, okay, let's go for um, the acquisition route. I also felt that actually, by being acquired, we can carry on growing and we may be able to spin off as an independent company in the future. And I think that is a viable and that is good for the parent company because, you know, they get to participate in the value created. They get the main benefits, but the company also then has the opportunity to continue growing as an independent. Uh, organism almost. Um, so I felt the route to getting to being a hundred billion dollar company, uh, if it was being acquired or IPOing, um, was better as being acquired. Thank you. I also um, I used to work in the Hyperloop team, and uh, some of my friends at the Hyperloop they. They kind of spinned off uh, their own startup as well, Continuum Industries. And uh, I remember that uh, they mentioned that you were 
uh, involved in in the initial funding very early on and it helped yeah. them to kind of uh, grow or produce like an initial product um, so what get, got you interested in uh, continuum industries and uh, and why did you want to get involved um, I really like the the team um, I mean I thought they did a fantastic and you did a fantastic job as as the the student society and project I mean it's just incredible uh, really really impressive and um, wanted to support the journey to the next step. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a rubbish investor in that I've got attention deficit disorder and, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, you want my opinion? Okay, here you go. And then it's kind of, uh, I've just forgotten or whatever. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not like a, a board member or anything like that. And, um, but I'm, I'm really proud that I was able to help them get started. Um, and uh, I think they're doing a doing a really good job. God, I, no, I'm not going to use that phrase. That sounds like Trump, doesn't it? Uh, I think they are. Uh, uh, I think they're really not to say really. They're all right. There we go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so, and now that you're not involved in Skyscan anymore, so how how do you spend your time, or what are you involved with? Um, so when um, when I started Skyscanner with my friends, I wanted my goal was to make I think at the time I wanted to make a million pounds and be able to go. I can live modestly on that for the rest of my life, so I can work on my real project, and I don't have to care what the rest of society or parents or you know um, you know opinion things I could just work on that thing and um, got to that stage and it's like no 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 and uh, you know I was too competitive for my own good in a way but um, I'm now in the stage where I can work on what the hell I like and what I'm working on is something called pure hereditary sets uh, so set theory and mathematics is the foundation of all mathematics and pure sets are sets that are only comprised of the empty set or sets constructed from them. And in fact, the numbers or the natural numbers are uh, defined in terms of pure sets uh, and von Neumann ordinals, von Neumann universe. Um, and my hypothesis is some of the smartest people, ma mathematicians, that have been working for hundreds of years and converging on this thing that they define the rest of maths in, which is sets, have been empirical cognitive scientists. They've been finding out what is the, what is common about all our thoughts. What is the foundation of a thought or concept in our head? Sets don't exist in reality. They don't exist, you know, they, um, um, they're thought, uh, but they're the minimum thought possible. That's my hypothesis. Uh, and I'm working on that. And I've got no idea whether I might turn it into a academic paper or uh, I'd like to implement Paul Graham's LISP. Well, I'd like to find someone who can implement Paul Graham's LISP called Bell 
and put in some of these ideas as part of it. And then from there, uh, then in order to turn it into business, I have to find someone young with damaged personality that's prepared to put their entire soul and working life into something with crazy intensity uh, because I'm a bit old for that shit now. <laughs> or I've, uh, I've got it out of my system. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds like a lot of interesting stuff uh, you're working on. And just to come back to the to your work on the on set theory, so is it kind of your hypothesis that you want to build the bridge between uh, you know the set theoretical foundation of mathematics and the way we think, and whether we think the same kind of foundation that everything all our thoughts are based on those uh, axioms? Yeah, at a further extent, I have to emphasize I'll be happy to find something that makes a nice blog post at the other extent. So I wouldn't say I've, I've you know, gone totally nuts. <laughs> um, but at its furthest extent, I would hypothesize that um, there is a useful calculus of conception. I mean, since Leibniz and um, Hermann Grassmann, People have been talking about that. And it's gone out of fashion, found its expression in good old-fashioned AI, which is essentially relational uh, databases, you know, object entities and properties, and very fixed. Um, whereas I'd like a hundred-sided dice, each face, one of them being topology, one of them being group theory, one of them being uh, identity, one of them being... Um, Uh, one of them being the natural numbers that can say through group theory of two items into the integers. It's kind of a, a really, it's kind of, the, what's the Swiss army knife that can then be used to, the next level up is someone called Ronald Langacker, who uh, does something called cognitive grammar. And in set theory, I want to build the object that you then deploy to implement Cognitive Grammar by Ronald Langhacker. So that's that's my goal. I'm not aiming to to, learn, to develop new maths. Um, it's too late for me to excel there, and uh, I'm not very talented at maths, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm really excited about... Um... So I was listening to someone on a podcast, and they said, you know... Uh, He's never coming up with new ideas. It's just the peer group who share the same idea gets smaller over time and as he gets smarter. And, and I think that's so true. The, you are not having new ideas. Um, and, but the peer group becomes a little bit more exalted and, and, uh, and interesting. And I think that's a really good way to look at it. And um, part of one of the applications that I'd like to see is this camera that when I'm reading a book, I can just circle in the book and it'll link it into some of you might see in your own database. So I've invested in something called Craft. Uh, that was a short question. That, that was my answer. Sounds great. Uh, we also have a question from Zara as well. Last one because we don't want to take much of your Well, thank you so much. Like, this has been really thank interesting. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, so my 
question is basically uh, which misconceptions, like what are the biggest misconceptions about businesses and founding a startup that you've come across and were sort of surprised to see and not true um, in your experience with Skyscanner? Mm. Well, lots of them. I think um, uh, misconceptions. So I think number one is, is um, Cleverness is overrated. Uh, it's incredibly important, but tenacity and and effort is way more important. Uh, is one of them. Second is that um, you don't have to be a rocket ship to do really well. And in fact, companies look you know like people would come. I'd give a presentation about Skyscanner when I was in the middle of things. And they go, wow, look at that chart. It goes like that. But I explained to you what it felt like. It felt like a chart doing that. We'd look at, you know, the olden days and go, wow, it went like that. And, um, but it never felt that at the time. And so you've got to really feel that you're doing the right thing. You need to get a sense of conviction about doing what. And one of the best ways is, is, to care about doing the right thing instead of, you know, sort of hacks and shortcut things that, that are impressive to other people. Impress yourself with the work you do. Um, I think one of the other things is, um, yeah, that'd be a more specific question, but um, it's really hard. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to go into this, be prepared from the beginning to put 20% of your time towards recruitment. Not immediate recruitment, but building up a network of people, finding out the 100 people you'd love to work with and have work for you. Because if there's 100 people and they're really high quality, over time, you'll persuade one, two, five of them to come work with you. And it will take a long time because... They can get jobs anywhere because they're really good. Um, it's not just about the technical, the work of your job. So it's about persuading other people to come join you as well. Uh, Perfect. Thank you very much, um, Garrett. It was really uh, a really great talk, and especially all the question was super interesting. And actually, we learned much more about you than uh, you know we might have through Wikipedia, you know, especially. <laughs> if considering what you're working on right now is really interesting stuff and uh, also you, how, how your journey uh, you know, was with Skyscanner. Um, so it was really great to talk to you and um, it'd be nice to see you again uh, soon. Um, Thanks so much. Thanks so and, much. Uh, yeah, thank you. Huh? Thank you. Uh, well, thank you all. Thank you for the questions. And I wish you so much uh, uh, best wishes over the next few years. Always available to give an opinion uh, can't promise any more than that, but uh, <laughs> uh, so reach out the same way you reached out to me. Thanks for watching this video. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. We'll be uploading new podcasts every week where we spotlight some of the world's leading startup founders and VCs to talk about their journeys and experiences in the field.